Hi everybody, my name is Nicole Hager and I am so excited to go and study the book of Hosea with you. Now we did have our first um, in-person session, it was on Wednesday, but unfortunately we had some technical difficulties, we're still working out the kinks there. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and just re-record the teaching um, because luckily we have lots of practice doing this. We did this all through podcasts last year. So I'm going to go ahead and just reteach through session one on the podcast. And so that way, if there's anybody who missed it or who wants to come and do the study later, you can still come and access the teaching. So this is not the live teaching for those of you guys who um, were here on Wednesday. I'm re-recording this. Um, but it's still going to be the same great information. Um, I'm really, really excited about this study uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is I think that a lot of us have a bit of a limited understanding about what the book of Hosea is about. A long time ago, maybe seven or eight years ago, I was talking with a really close lifelong friend of mine. Um, she's not a Christian, but we have really great conversations about faith and um, our beliefs. And one day she asked me if I had a favorite book of the Bible. Now, I've never really been like a favorite person. I don't really have like a favorite book or a favorite song or things like that. Um, so I had never really thought about if I had a favorite book of the Bible. So I just kind of off the cuff said, oh, you know, I think Hosea might be my favorite book. And so she asked me what it was about. And, you know, I explained, hey, it's this beautiful allegory. Um, God tells Hosea to marry this woman who is going to be unfaithful to him. And he's supposed to love her anyway. And it's just this beautiful picture of how God loves us even when we seek after other things. So that's what I told her. Okay, do you want to know something super, super embarrassing that I really don't even want to admit to you? When I told her this, I had never actually read the entire book of Hosea. I hadn't read it. Guys, that's so bad. Basically, I had read a couple of chapters of it, but you know what I had read? I hadn't read the book of Hosea, but what I had read is a book called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. I'm sure most of you guys have heard of it. It's really, really um, popular. Even when I was printing this study, I went to a print shop and they said, oh, you're doing Hosea. Have you read Redeeming Love? It's my favorite book. And so I think everybody, when we think of Hosea, we think of the book Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. Now, if you haven't heard of this book or if you haven't read it, it's basically a piece of fiction, um, and she kind of uses the story of Hosea and Gomer and just creates this story about a man who marries a woman who's unfaithful and he loves her anyway. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful love story um, and just supposed to be like the allegory, you know, like of what I basically described my friend. So basically what I had done was I had read a fictional novel based on the story of Hosea in chapters one and three, and then I decided, hey, Hosea might be my favorite book of the Bible. Yikes, guys, that's so embarrassing. Um, but hey, since then, I have actually read and studied the book. And you know what answer I would probably not give as my favorite book of the Bible when I'm talking to an unbelieving friend? I probably would not point them to Hosea as my favorite because don't get me wrong, it is a great book and it's a super important book and we need to know it and study it. But it is super heavy and super hard. Guys, there is some imagery in here that if I were to point a non-believer to, they would be so confused and not understand why I'm pointing them there. I mean, there's imagery of um, just a lot of death and destruction. And so, um, yeah, you know what? I think I just had this picture of this beautiful Francine Rivers book, um, but I didn't really understand the book of a whole. A lot of you guys may be reading through the first time this week in the homework might be sitting here wondering, what have I gotten myself into? This is not what I expected. But you know, the fact that many of us probably have a one-sided view of what the book of Hosea is about is exactly why we need to study it. 
Because oftentimes having a half truth or just a half story is so much more dangerous than we realize. To give you an example of how this plays out, one time I was at a um, kind of a conference type thing of a, of a Christian speaker, and I use the word Christian kind of loosely because he has theology that's very different than what I would agree with. Um, this is not somebody that I would recommend people listening to, but it was one that we were um, just kind of going with some family members who um, wanted us to come with them. And at this conference of the speaker from out of town, they were selling these t-shirts and the t-shirts said on them, I can do all things. That's it. It stopped there. It said, I can do all things. Now I'm guessing you probably know that that's half of a verse. The other half of the verse is through Christ who strengthens me. I want you to think about the difference between those two statements. I can either say I can do all things or I can say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know both of those I could say, hey, it's in the Bible, but they have very, very different meanings. So when I take the half truth and I say something like I can do all things and then claim it as a Bible verse, well, what have I done? I've distorted the scripture to mean something that that is maybe a little bit more self-serving or that's not what it actually means. Because think about when I say I can do all things, who's the hero? I am. Who is that verse serving? myself. It's all about me and what I can accomplish if I just set my mind to it. And if I take that and start to apply it to my life, it becomes all about me and what I can do. And, and you know, as long as I try hard enough, I can do whatever I have my, set my mind to. Well, and then what happens when I start to fail at things or if things don't work how I want? Either I can blame myself and think, well, I must not have had a strong enough faith. Or I might blame God and say, well, God, you told me I could do anything. Like you must not be strong or powerful. So do you see how having that half truth or half belief it leads me down a very dangerous path. Now, on the other hand, if I take the verse in its context and read the whole thing, and I say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, well, now who's the hero? Jesus is. Now who is that verse serving? Well, it's serving the Lord because this verse is in the context of being endure, being able to endure all the things that are in our path when we're serving God. And so having the right context and having the whole truth makes a huge difference in how we apply the scripture. And it's going to help protect us from some dangerous things. So in the same way, if we take only the part of Hosea that makes us feel good, or that serves our own interests, and we don't look at the book altogether, we may start to internalize the belief that, hey, what I do doesn't really matter. I mean, God's going to love me no matter what. Like, I can pretty much live however I want, and he's going to forgive me. Like, it's good. We're all good. And then we start to move more and more towards this extreme end of being complacent with our sin and not being grieved by it. And guys, that is dangerous, okay? So let's not do that. Let's not settle for a half truth. Let's dive into the book of Hosea and face the hard stuff head on, no matter how uncomfortable some of it is going to make us feel. Because you see, when we pick and choose only the palatable parts of scripture to to shape our view of God, and we just throw out anything that doesn't serve our own self-interests or doesn't feel good to us, we can easily start worshiping a God of our own creation rather than worshiping the one true God who reveals himself to us through scripture. We need to see what God is revealing to us through the book of Hosea about himself. So as we study together, I do have a few goals in mind for us. 
My first goal is that we are going to leave this study with a true and accurate understanding of the book of Hosea. Guys, if somebody comes up to us and asks us what the book of Hosea is about, I want us to be able to answer it and give a true and accurate answer. I want us to be right and correct and not give a half truth. So that is my first goal as we study the book of Hosea. My second goal here is that we would actually be changed by our time studying the word. I don't want us to just be gaining head knowledge. I don't want us to just be getting smarter. I want this head knowledge that we're really diving into and gaining to be used by the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, to conform us into the image of Jesus. I want it to stir up our affections for God. I want us to love God and experience him more fully because of our time in the word, because that is what time in scripture should do. It shouldn't just be time learning with our minds. That time learning should then come out in our hearts and in our actions. Okay, guys? So I want us to be changed by our time in Hosea. I don't want us to leave here the same. And finally, my third goal is that we would all feel a little bit more confident in our ability to study the Bible for ourselves. I want us to leave here with some tools so that we can say, hey, I want to study another book of the Bible. And you know, I remember when we studied the book of Hosea, these are some of the things we did. I'm going to apply those because that's what this is all about. I want you to learn and feel more confident in your own ability to think through and ask good questions and study well. So I hope that we leave here with tools and I'm going to be sharing one of those with you right now. Um, it's kind of the study method that we use as we do all this. If you've been through some of our studies before, you will be, be a little bit familiar with this, but the study method that we use and kind of is underlying all of the things that we do is called the CIA method, okay? The CIA method, basically the C stands for comprehension. In other words, what does the text say? The I is interpretation. What does the text mean? And the A is application. How should the text change me? So when we approach scripture, whether it's Hosea or any other book, this is the order that we want to train our mind to go through, okay? We don't want to just go, jump to scripture and start saying, how do I apply this? Because remember, that's dangerous. If we don't know that we really know what the scripture is saying, we run the risk at best of doing a shallow application and at worst of doing an incorrect application and just starting to go down a trail that makes us look less like Jesus and not more like Jesus, okay? So we want to do the hard work of making sure we understand what the text actually says and what it really means before we start trying to apply it to our lives. Application is always last, guys. We like to jump straight to it. We love application. And I love it too. I love it so much that I want to do it well. I want to do it deeply and I want to do it accurately. And the best way to apply things deeply and accurately is to spend time in comprehension and interpretation first. So that's why we do the study the way we do. Okay, I'm going to tell you the different kind of components of our study here. And um, we have three different components. We have homework, we have like a lecture or teaching time, and then we have discussion time. Now, I really do believe that the comprehension step is probably the most neglected and maybe the most important in order for us to do these other ones well. So most of your homework is going to be centered around comprehension. A lot of these questions are aimed towards helping you be able to answer, what is the text really saying here? And then as you start to do more and more comprehension questions, they'll start to slowly lead you into a little bit of interpretation to say, okay, now I'm starting to grasp what it's saying. What does that really mean? And then finally, at the end of your homework, there's going to be a couple of application questions. And I hope that those application questions will be meaningful because of the time you have spent in the first two steps, okay? So that is our homework leg. And then the other one is that we're going to do after you've done the homework, that's the first thing you do is the homework. You'll come here on a Wednesday night 
and you'll hear the teaching. That's what this is right now. So for those of you listening to this later, if you miss a teaching, you can always come and try to listen to it on the podcast. It won't be up right away, but once it's up, you can always listen to it if you've missed something. And then after you've listened to the teaching, then we have small group discussion times where you can really kind of start to work through and discuss the things that you've been learning and hearing. Um, so that's kind of just the um, the format of the class and kind of my goals for the class and everything. Um, so on that note, we're going to start with an exercise. I do this um, whenever I read through a book of the Bible or study a book of the Bible. We've done this in all the studies that we've done so far. And this is a great exercise that I recommend doing before studying um, just any book of the Bible. This is called reading the envelope. This is not something that I invented. This is something I've learned um, just at different workshops. Um, but it's so helpful and it's helped me a lot as I've studied different books. Now the idea of reading the envelope is that when you get a piece of mail, um, that mail typically comes in an envelope and you get a lot of information on that envelope. So you, your mind is already um, in the right place before you even open it. Because of the information, you just automatically take in from the envelope. That envelope tells you who the letter is written to, who it's from, where and when it was written because of the postmark in the corner. And then just the type of letter itself, you can usually tell kind of whether this is a bill or whether it's a birthday card or a letter from a friend, kind of like the genre, if you will, of the letter. Um, and so the, you know, like really when I have a birthday card in my hand, my mind already can tell from holding that envelope that it's for me. I can tell who it's from. I can tell that it's going to be a card and I'm excited about it because it's my mind has been postured for it. When I have a bill, same thing. My mind is going to be postured in a different way and I'm going to be prepared for a bill. So the same thing is true when we're reading books of the Bible. We can answer these same questions and that's going to help us posture our minds to be ready for the information we're about to take in. Because if I'm going to read something from Proverbs, my mind needs to posture itself a little bit different than if I'm going to read like something from, say, Revelation. Those are completely different types of literature and they're meant to be read and taken in differently. So doing this whole um, reading the envelope exercise, it just kind of gets us our minds in a place where we're ready to fully take in um, what we're about to read. Um, so what we're going to do is I kind of had you do this for your homework and we're going to do it again here. We're going to read the envelope together and I hope to fill in any gaps to help us be prepared as possible to fully study the book of Hosea. Um, because it's one thing to say, hey, Hosea wrote this and he wrote it in, you know, the year BC 755-ish. Like we can say that, but that can just feel like an arbitrary name and date. Um, it's not going to be as meaningful as actual context. Like if I were to say, hey guys, I've got this letter and it was written from Betty to Lou in 1930. That wouldn't really mean anything to you or prepare you for what's inside because it's just an arbitrary name and an arbitrary date. But if I were to say, hey, my grandmother, Betty, she wrote this letter to her son, Lou. He was in the war and like they had just had this big battle and she didn't know if he was alive. And so she wrote him this letter and it was a really, really traumatic time. Well, now you have some context. Your when this was written is more than a number and a date. This is like a, this is a, you've got a context of what was going on in history at that time. And so now when you read the letter, you're going to pick up on things you might not have picked up on before. You're going to say, oh, it sounds like this is her fear coming out, or this is a little bit of hope because she would have been thinking about this. And having that context, it shapes the way you take in the information. So I want us to do that for the book of Hosea, and I want it to do as thoroughly as we can. So we're going to dive in, and I'm going to try to answer all the questions in your homework for you um, on your reading the envelope exercise, starting with the who. Who wrote this letter? 
Well, we know the author was Hosea. Um, and, you know, this is maybe not quite the way you picture an author being. This wasn't a situation where he just sat down one day and wrote this book or even over a month or anything like that. A lot of the words were written by Hosea himself, but a lot of them were just his teachings that were recorded by his disciples at different times in his ministry. So these words were recorded from Hosea by the disciples or written by Hosea himself, like over a pretty long period of Hosea's life. And then they were all kind of gathered together intentionally and for a purpose. So they all were the words that God spoke through Hosea. Um, but this is kind of like they were gathered together and compiled to make this book in an intentional way. Um, so when I say this is with Hosea, again, this is just a name. It doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. And we don't know a whole lot about Hosea um, from the scripture that tells us basically who his father is. Um, and really the only reason it kind of gives that name is just to differentiate this Hosea from Ho other Hoseas in the Bible. But other than that, that's all we really know about him other than he was a prophet. So let's talk about that for a minute because we don't typically talk about prophets in our church context today or our, just our regular context today. Um, so this word probably either doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to you or there's a good chance we might even have the wrong idea of its meaning. I think a lot of us think of the word prophecy and we think that has completely to do with predicting the future. Like you might even kind of picture kind of fortune teller type um, scenario in your mind. But that's not really the, a super accurate view of what a biblical prophet would have been. Um, what a biblical prophet would have been was they were generally somebody who speaks the truth of God to others. It was their job just to faithfully speak the word of God to people. Now many, not all, but many of prophets in the Bible also had an element of looking into the future. Like maybe God would give a warning of future judgment to be delivered to the people or something along those lines. Um, but primarily their job was just to speak God's word to the people. For hundreds of years, God used prophets to guide the nation of Israel and to eventually establish the church. Um, in the Bible, um, we see a lot of prophets, and there's kind of different rings when we look at what prophets were. So on the big, wide, outer ring, there's just this idea that there's a lot of people who would prophesy. Like you might hear an instance of somebody prophesying or prophesying. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that person was a prophet, the same way that somebody in our culture might not be a teacher, but at some point they might teach their friend how to do something, or they might teach you know, their kids something. And you would not say that person is a teacher, but you would say, oh, they taught something over there. And the same is true of prophets. There's a lot of instances of people prophesying in the Bible, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that person had the title prophet. So that's the big ring. And then we come in a little bit more narrow, and then we get the people who were actually named prophets. They were given the title of prophet. And in the Bible, there's more than 133 of these, more than 133 named prophets. And fun fact, 16 of those in the Bible named prophets were women. So there were women prophets. For those of you guys who did the judges study, you might remember that Deborah, she was one of the judges, but she was also a prophet. So there are women prophets in the Bible. Um, and so that's kind of the next string. And then if we kind of go in a little bit even further of all those named prophets, an even smaller number of prophets actually wrote books of the Bible. And those are called the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, the major prophets are called major because they're longer. The minor prophets are shorter. That's really the only difference. And so that's kind of the smallest ring. There are titled prophets who actually wrote books of the Bible. And Hosea falls in that category. He is a minor prophet. He wrote one of the shorter prophetic books of the Bible. Um, so we know that there's kind of these different rings of, you know, people who did prophecy. Um, but whether or not that they just prophesied a few times or whether they um, had the title of prophet or whether they actually wrote a book, they all had the same purpose, which was to point 
people to guide by speaking God's truth. Another couple of things just to know about prophets. Um, a lot of times God would give prophets some sort of physical experience to match the prophecy that they were going to deliver. Um, like Jonah gets swallowed by a whale. That's a physical experience. Ezekiel has to eat unclean food. That's a physical experience. Hosea has to marry Gomer and he has these kids with these names. And that's a physical experience. So with a lot of the prophets, their lives actually illustrate the prophecy that they are going to deliver. And so they're embodying the prophecy in a pretty intense way. Um, and so really, they're not just pointing to the truth of God with their words, but really with their lives in certain ways. And it's also worth notice, noting about prophets that a lot of prophets were not liked. The people did not listen to them. Um, a lot of them were despised or ignored. And that's really because usually they were calling people to turn from things that people didn't want to turn from. Um, people don't really like to be called to turn away from their sin. So that is important for us to know about Hosea. That kind of gives us a little bit better understanding of what a prophet was. So that was the who, who wrote it. What about the audience? The next question on your homework. Who was this book written to? Well, this was all written to and spoken to the people in the northern kingdom of Israel. So at this time, Israel had split. So there was not one united Israel anymore. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Hosea is speaking specifically to the northern kingdom. We're going to get into this in a little bit when we talk about the when. But what's, what's important to know about the audience is that they had turned from God a long time ago. And for generations, they had been completely unfaithful to the covenant between them and God. So Hosea's purpose was to warn the people that God was about to enforce the terms of his covenant. So we need to know this about the audience, that they were God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel. They had not been faithful to the covenant for hundreds of years. They were serving other gods, worshiping other gods, and their lives were characterized by sin and immorality. So that's the audience. That's the who it was written to. Now we're going to get into the, a longer chunk here. And when was it written? And this is important. Even if you think you know the timeline, I want you to pay attention because there are certain things I'm going to highlight here that are specifically important to Hosea, okay? So we're going to get into a little bit of history. Um, the date most people think this was written was somewhere between 755 and 725 BC. Um, Hosea kind of started prophesying earlier than that, close to 785, and the book was written later to kind of compile everything. So that's kind of the when. But again, that's just an arbitrary number. It doesn't mean a whole lot to us. So what was a quick timeline of what had happened up to this point? Well, I'm going to go back about 500 years. And a lot of us know this part of the story. Even people outside of the church know a lot of this because so many movies have been made about it. But we know that at one point in history, Israel is enslaved by Egypt. Okay, so Egypt has all of Israel. They are their slaves. Um, this is kind of all the stories that you see where Moses comes and God brings the plagues. And it's like the whole let my people go. And, you know, the plagues come. And then finally Moses leads them out of Egypt. Okay, so this happens. And during this time, God is giving them this promise of a promised land. He's saying, I'm going to lead you to a promised land. And that's the land of Canaan. And so during the time between when they escape Egypt or are led out of Egypt and the time that they enter Canaan, there's about a 40-year period. Okay, this is the period where they're wandering in the wilderness. Now, near the beginning of this 40-year period, probably a couple of months in, um, this is when we hear the whole story about God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And this is really important because this is when God is establishing a covenant with his people. Okay, so this is the story where Moses goes, he gets the Ten Commandments, and he brings them down. Um, and so at this time, basically God gives Moses these Ten Commandments and he gives them a whole bunch of other laws too. And he says, these are all the things that I want you guys to do. You're going to follow all of my laws. 
If you follow my laws, I will bless you and take care of you. If you don't follow my laws and if you're unfaithful to this covenant and you serve other gods, then I will bring these curses upon you. And he lays out clearly what these curses are going to be. There's like chapters in the Old Testament about what laws are supposed to follow and what the curses are going to be if they didn't. So it was like it was like a, you know, this covenant type um, situation where it's very clearly laid out. Now, we don't really talk a whole lot about covenants, um, in, you know, in our, you know, culture and context. But it's just important to know that a covenant is a relationship that two parties entered into and they would make binding promises to one another. And this covenant that we see in the Old Testament um, in, the, in the wilderness is really referred to as the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant. It's usually called the Mosaic Covenant. And in this period, this, this is a covenant that kind of um, is written in a similar fashion to what kings during that period of time would have made with their people. And so God is kind of making the point that I'm going to be your king. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to take care of you. This is the covenant that I have with you. And so then the people said, yes, everything you have said, we will do. So God has put forth what he has promised. The people have promised to obey it. They enter into this covenant together. And there is very specific warnings of what will happen if they're not faithful. Now, one thing I want you to know and realize about this covenant is that this was a conditional covenant. So God's blessings depended on the people's actions. He said, if you, if you fulfill your end of the bargain, then I will bless you, basically. So this is his blessings are conditional on what the Israelites do. And then if they did not you know, obey, then they would receive his curses. There's lots of, um, there's other covenants throughout the Bible, and we are a part of the new covenant under Jesus. And it's different because this is not a conditional covenant. Like we are receiving um, just unconditional grace from God when we are in Christ. But this, so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that this was a different kind of covenant that the Israelites went under. It was a conditional covenant. So we have to remember that moving forward. So then let's keep going with our timeline here. So they get this, um, the Mosaic Covenant, at the beginning of their time in the wilderness. They wander around for 40 years, and then they finally enter the promised land. We read about that in Joshua and in Judges. For those of you guys who did the Judges study, you know right off the bat that they were not faithful to the covenant. They were horrible at being faithful to the covenant. They immediately started following other gods. Like one generation goes by, and they basically don't know God anymore. And so they didn't drive out the Canaanites. They lived among the Canaanites, and they started following all the Canaanite gods. They did a lot of terrible things. Things went bad quick. So during that whole period, they're ruled by a series of judges for about 180 years. And then um, they kind of say, hey, this isn't working out for us so well. We want a king. We want a king like all the other nations. Now, remember, God gave them this whole covenant that basically laid him out as he was king. And he's like, well, I'm your king. I mean, I made this whole covenant with you. It reflected covenants that kings made with their people. And they said, no, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a person king that we can see and really follow. And remember, they were supposed to be set apart with God as their king, but they had been rejecting God for so long, and now they take their rejection even further. They want an earthly king to follow instead. So God gives them what they ask for. The monarchy is established, and now there's a new kind of period of history in the Bible. It's called the monarchy, and this is when we start to see the different kings. So first there's King Saul, then there's King David, and then there's King Solomon. These are the three kings you hear a lot about. There's lots of time spent in the Bible discussing what happened during their reigns. So you may or may not be familiar with kind of their different um, things that happened for each of them. 
Now, after Solomon, after that king, he was kind of the last king that got to rule a united kingdom of Israel. Some stuff happened, and after Solomon was a king, Israel divided. And now there was northern Israel and southern Israel. And southern Israel was called Judah. And so they suddenly were not united anymore. And then after the split, there were several kings for each kingdom. One thing that's constant through all of this, though, is that Israel is very, very terrible at being faithful to the covenant. They're constantly following other gods. Now, when they split into these two kingdoms, the first king of the northern kingdom was King Jeroboam. And Jeroboam got worried because there was this rule where there's supposed to be one place. This is one of the things in the, in the covenant. There was one place where they're supposed to worship. And that place is where they're supposed to go there to worship the Lord, make sacrifices and whatnot. And that place was in Jerusalem. Well, guess where Jerusalem was? It was in the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam is the king of the northern kingdom. And he starts to worry. And he's like, well, wait a minute. If I start letting all my people travel regularly down to the southern kingdom to worship and to give their sacrifices, they're going to start to be loyal to the southern kingdom and they're going to rebel against me and they're going to overthrow me and they might kill me. So he gets scared. And so Jeroboam says, huh, I can't have this. So I've got to do something here. So he creates two golden calves. He's like, I can't have them worshiping down there. I'm going to create something here for them to worship. He creates these two golden calves and he kind of tells his people, hey guys, you know, it's really so far for you to travel all the way south. I'm really looking out for you. Here's some new gods now for you guys to worship so you don't have to travel so far. And he places one golden calf in Bethel and one in Dan. And he didn't stop there. Another thing that they were supposed to do was that God assigned certain priests and all of the priests were supposed to be out of the family of Levi. They were all sons of Levi. They were the Levites. Well, Jeroboam is like, eh, I'm just going to make my own priests too. So he creates his own priests. He consecrates his own priests that were not consecrated by God. So he's completely derailing them. He's saying, I'm going to create my own gods and create my own priests for to lead to, for my people to worship and for my people to follow and be led by. Guys, you see how terribly this is going right off the bat for the Northern Kingdom. Um, so they are now worshiping golden calves, appointing their own priests. And then after this calf business starts, a few hundred years go by, several kings go by, and then Hosea comes around. And during that time, what started with these two calves has now become multiple bales, which we're going to go into in the coming weeks. But um, this was the, the fertility god of Canaan. Now, all of a sudden, it started with these two golden calves. Now there's all of these bales that the Israelites are following and worshiping, and they've completely abandoned um, the god of the Bible. And so they are far from God. But it, what's interesting is that even though they're far away from God spiritually, they're doing pretty good economically. They were in a time of great prosperity. They had a stable and secure government, and they didn't probably see a whole lot of reason to change. So in their eyes, following these other gods was kind of working for them. Well, that was, again, from their limited view, though, because Hosea knew, because God revealed it, and we know, because we're on the other side of history, that in a few short years, the period of the kings was going to end, and Assyria was going to come and take over the northern kingdom. So Hosea comes to warn them and to tell them, hey, guys, you have been unfaithful to the covenant that you and made, that the Lord made with you for long enough, and I think, you know, it is, it's about to end, and you're about to get overthrown. Um, what was about to happen, he wanted to make sure that they knew that this was God following through on the terms of his covenant. Israel had been unfaithful in every way. 
Spiritually, they had been looking to Baal for what God promised to provide. Politically, they were looking to outside nations for protection and alliances instead of trusting God to protect them. And then personally, their lives were just riddled with personal sin and selfishness. We're going to see some evidence of that um, throughout the book. And God had had enough. His patience had finally run out and the terms of the covenant, the curses that he told them clearly 500 years ago, were about to play out because they had consistently for hundreds of years been unfaithful to the covenant, the conditional covenant that depended on their faithfulness, okay? Now, it seems like a lot. We covered a lot of ground just now. Um, if you study, as you study other books of the Old Testament, you're going to get a lot more detail of that whole timeline. So much of the Bible fills in all what that what happened during that time but this is also important to understand because it gives you the context of what was going on when the book was written and how long this unfaithfulness had been going on um so that's kind of the when when it was written let's move on now to the genre what genre is this book um well in hosea and all the prophet pr prophetic literature there's a lot of different kind of genres mixed in there's poetry there's prose, there's allegory, there's narrative. There's lots of different writing styles um, so to kind of work together to kind of bring home the messages of the of the prophets. But the primary genre, the overarching genre of it all is prophecy. This is prophetic literature. Now, we already talked about how like the prophets had a purpose. All the prophets had a role, and that was to speak the truth to God's people. And in the same way, prophets had a purpose. Um, the books, like the prophetic books, also have a purpose. They all have a very specific purpose, and that is that they are supposed to point Israel back to the covenant, okay? So all prophetic books are the purpose of pointing Israel back to the covenant, okay? Their primary purpose wasn't to predict the future, although many of them did that, but their primary purpose was to call people back to the covenant, um, Hosea does have an element of predicting the future. Um, the people had no reason to believe that their kingdom was going to soon start to fall. And Hosea tells them, hey, this is about to happen, guys. It's about to go down. And his prophecy is proven because they're taken over shortly after all this is spoken to them. Now, the point of this, what's the point of giving that prophetic look into the future? Well, um, they want, he wants to point them back to the covenant, but also he wants it to be clear that what's about to happen is because of the covenant and not by chance. And it's not because these nations that are about to overthrow them have more powerful gods, because really that's kind of the mindset. It's like, well, gosh, if they overtook me, then their God must be more powerful than mine. And then God through Hosea wants to make clear, this is not about that. This is not other gods being more powerful than the ones you're serving. This is the terms of your covenant coming down on you. So the prophecy told them how to correctly interpret what was about to happen. They had reached a breaking point in their covenant with God, and that is why they were about to be overthrown. So that's kind of the genre there. Um, so I think that that kind of covers most of what those categories were on your in your homework. Um, as we start to study the book, I want you to really do your best to put aside any assumptions you have about Hosea. Like we talked about earlier, we were, pre were presented this book as a beautiful picture of God's love and forgiveness of his people. And it is that, it is, but it's so much more. And we need to know that the original audience, they're not the ones who get to see all the future blessings. All these pictures of God still loving his people after their unfaithfulness, that's not for the original audience. That's for hundreds of years after that. The original audience was only getting the judgment, okay? All the glimpses of God's forgiveness and hope for the future were not for them. They're going to happen hundreds of years later. So for the original audience, this would not have been a beautiful picture of God's love 
This is basically the message of their impending doom. And we have to remember that as we read it so that we're not taking a lopsided view. Now, as a whole, this book can be divided into three categories. And we're going to see three different things throughout the book. The first one is we're going to see a lot of evidence. Like if you think of a courtroom when somebody's on trial, there's a lot of evidence laid down of this is what you have done and this is how I know it. So we're going to see a lot of that throughout the book. That's the first category. The second category is curses or judgments. And that's basically God saying, hey, because of all that evidence, because of everything you've done, this is what I'm going to do to you. This is your, your punishment, basically. And then the third category is the blessings. This is the, but in the future, God is going to do this, all this beautiful stuff. Okay, so we've got, um, we've got the evidence, the curses, and the blessings. Now, on the evidence, guess how much of the book is devoted to the evidence. About two-thirds. Guys, two-thirds of the book of Hosea falls under the category of evidence. So for two-thirds of our time studying, we're going to see spelled out the evidence of the Israelites' sin. God is going to tell them clearly, this is what you have done, and this is about this is why you're about to be cut off from me. And then the curses, the judgment. About a quarter of the book is all the curses and the judgment they are going to receive from God. Um, and these judgments, they are not easy to swallow. I'm going to be honest. We're going to have to wrestle with some really, really tough stuff. Um, I'm excited to dive into it. I think we're going to learn a lot that we tend to want to look over, but I think it's so important. But about a quarter of the book is devoted to these curses. And then finally, less than a tenth of the book is devoted to announcing the future blessings. That's less than 10%, guys. That's the future blessings that God is promising. God wants it to be known that regardless of what is about to happen, he is never going to completely abandon Israel. And there is going to come a time when a new covenant would be formed. But this is all for a future generation. This is all something that we are getting to benefit from and enjoy. But the original audience was only to receive the curses. And I think that that should be sobering to us as we read it. Um, so now that I have probably scared all of you, and you're probably most likely sitting here thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Why did Francine Rivers lie to me? Um, I want you to, to break into some small groups. Um, if you're doing this with a group of girls or um, if you're listening to this later, um, try to like be able to process this somehow because I want you to be able to process with other people what we've learned so far because it's kind of a lot and it's hard to take it, but it's good. It's challenging and it's going to push us to understand parts of God character, God's character that we need to understand if we're going to know and worship the God of the Bible and not just a God of our own creation. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I want you to go and process this with somebody else. Dear God, thank you so much for your word and for the book of Hosea and all of the truth that is found in it. Thank you for how much you are going to push us and challenge us as we study it. And I pray that your spirit would be present and active and moving and helping us to just deepen our understanding of who you are. And I pray that it would deepen in a way that stirs our affections for you even more and changes who we are as people, Lord. I pray that we would um, let go of sin as we study this, that you would convict us of sin and that we would repent. And I just pray that we would be changed and conformed more into your image, Lord. Help us to wrestle with the hard stuff and not shy away from it. And help us just to see the truth behind the hard stuff, okay? Help us to not um, take it the wrong way, but help us to truly see what you want us to see about you and your character through it all. We love you, Lord, and thank you for your word. Amen.